Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for the beauty of your creation, for brisk mornings, for fall weather, for leaves that are changing, for a creation that sings your praises and groans for redemption and change. Give us a moment of peace, a moment of stillness, quiet our hearts so that we may tune ourselves to you, to each other. In your holy name we pray. Amen. So I, um, I've got just a, a quick thing to share. And for those of you who are joining through the podcast, these slides are available on the website. Um, there's not a whole lot of information on this. I just wanted to kind of uh, pull back real quick before we jump again um, into the deep uh, waters. Um, so pulling back is in uh, Mark 1 through 3, which we, you know, the first uh, three weeks we uh, covered is Jesus is always building up community. So in Mark 1 through 3, we do see Jesus calling the disciples and building a community around around his mission. But quite a bit of those episodes, Jesus is on the attack. And this is something that I have tried to emphasize from the very beginning. It's really interesting and notable, the types of things and people that Jesus does attack. So again, kind of the... Con common wisdom of what Christianity is, is like going after people who are quote-unquote sinners, like um, uh, 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 people who drink too much or <laughs> or any of the, the things that we think about as like uh, being apart from the church. That's another thing, just people who aren't in the church are sinners, right? Um, uh, uh, but yet, if we actually just look at Jesus's actions, the people that he goes after are mostly religious leaders. <laughs> um, uh, the political and religious elite is who Jesus is, is kind of on this campaign of deconstructing and dismantling um, their power. We see that their power is, um, is bad primarily be, because these institutions, either religious institutions or political institutions, are... Um, oppressing people. They are robbing people of money. They are not allowing for the forgiveness of sins. They are not allowing people to be restored that are have been put outside the community, either because they're deformed or they're impure or they have debt, um, and thus they've been kept from the will of God. So Jesus, any system, any system that goes out to um, create barriers between God and people, especially the poor and the outcast, uh, Jesus is single-mindedly um, doggedly going after them. Okay, so that's Mark chapter 1 through 3. And then we had the bridge last week, which is Jesus's longest sermon, um, mostly parabolic in parables. Um, and I just have to say, one of the things that I, one of the reasons I love um, why I'm not just doing a podcast where it's just me talking into the recorder is that through our conversations with you all, um, I learn so much. And that's not just like, Something, you know, I'm saying because it's like nice to say, but um, one thing, a couple real quick reflections that of my own learnings in these past few weeks. Um, one, my sermon last Sunday um, was primarily motivated by 
uh, Jan, who couldn't be here tonight because she's um, ill, not COVID, but just ill, and uh, she sends her regrets. But Jan's question about like, um, I'm reading Jesus saying, give up all that you own, and I'm really trying to figure out what that means for my life. The, like my whole sermon was built around trying to answer that very sincere question. So like it really stuck with me. The other thing, the other kind of learning for me in the last few weeks of this class is looking through um, Jesus's parables, the parable of the sower and Jesus um, explaining what, which each part, what, what each part meant. And there was like the four, the three people who fail. The first one um, is the, is when the message it lands inert on someone. It doesn't move them. They just, they're unchanged the, you know, the, and then the second one is it takes root. And this again is, is in chapter four. It takes root, but because Jesus says of persecution, they give up, you know, it's like understandable <laughs> who likes, who likes persecution. And, you know, in the first century persecution meant, you know, like death <laughs> um, or, or the threat of death. And then the hardest thing to overcome. So first is just kind of overcoming just simple understanding. The second is overcoming like the social pressures and even like physical pressure that, that society might put on you. And then the hardest thing to overcome is um, uh, the giving up of wealth in chapter four. Those who um, are lured, lured by the power of wealth. What's the phrase? Um, this is chapter, this is chapter four, verse 19, um, and, or starting in 18 and others are those sown among the thorns. These are the ones who heard the word, but the cares of the world and the lure of wealth and the desire of other things comes in and chokes it. That's like the, 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 the true peak of temptation for the, for the Christian community. So that was last week, the bridge. This week, um, we're turning the page to Mark chapter 5, 6, 7, and just a little bit of 8, um, but 5 through 8. And this is um, what um, Chad Myers calls uh, Jesus's ministry of kingdom building, the, the kind of construction. So in chapters um, 5, 6, and 7 especially, we have Jesus trying to build up the kingdom, to, to um, give Mark is giving us example after example of true people of faith um, and, and these people who begin to follow Jesus. And so I, we're going to look in detail at these stories. But I want to step back and say what we're looking at are like the exemplars of what faith is. And who the exemplars of faith are, I think, is um, shocking. Uh, shocking the kind of examples that Jesus picks as exemplars of faith faith. And so that's where we are right now. We're past the kind of um, de deconstructing the powers of domination, and we're getting to Jesus um, reaching out and building up his own community. So let me just stop right there real quick. Um, stop to share. And uh, any any thoughts? Uh, does that... Uh, where are we? Perfect. Good. In debate in high school, I, I was in high school debate and there's this phrase that we use and that is silence is compliance. 
<laughs> which I think meant like if they don't object to something, then they agree to it. Um, but oh, but it, it it will be more helpful if we just look specifically at some of these texts, uh, unless there is like a a, a question or a insight. Cool. All right, let's look at the text. First, we're going to start as we usually do. I'm going to ask someone to uh, read the text. Oh, actually, let me just um, do one one quick pullback. And that is um, Chad Myers does this really interesting kind of uh, comparison. And if you'll remember, one of the things that got me started on this whole trek of thinking about Mark is um, Cindy Anderson's question about there being two... Um, mass feedings uh two feedings of the thousands in the gospel of mark which honestly i i just hadn't remembered <laughs> and but so this frame here uh, this slide um shows how much how many of the activities that jesus is involved in is doubled throughout the gospel so for instance um there's a, the uh, inaugural exorcism in chapter one and here in chapter five on the Gentile side, so after they get into the boat at the end of chapter 4, beginning of chapter 5, there's another exorcism which kind of parallels the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. So this is like the beginning of the ministry in, um, in uh, the kind of, quote, very symbolic, stylized sense of the Gentile side. Uh, we're not looking at the exorcism this week. I want to do that next week, but it's very interesting there's a lot of roman military imagery used in this um exorcism and so it's really i think helpful to think about jesus going to the gentile world where like roman occupation um it, 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 the hellenization and to think of that the first thing that that, that needs to be done is to um exercise cast out military power but um, that's not going to be on the focus today. The kind of the next double is um, popular ministry. This is Jesus going out into the countryside and healing and teaching. And if you'll notice, um, Chad Myers has in mind here, uh, chapter 6, verses 54 through 56. So that's just a couple of verses. And it's similar in the first chapter of Mark, where it just says Jesus is out in the countryside, just healing and teaching um, and uh, everybody. And then we have two versions of symbolic healings in chapter 5 and in chapter 7. We have two wilderness feedings in chapter 6 and chapter 8. And then we have two non-comprehension of loaves, um, which we'll see today and we'll talk about um, on the very last class. And uh, loaves for Mark is, is, uh, is symbolic. Uh would someone like to read what I have here on the left? Um, this is the first boat journey. For those of you who can't see, it's Mark chapter 4, the very end of chapter 4, 35 through 41. I'm happy to do it. Thank you, David. I think somebody waved their hands. Don, do you want to do it? Oh, I. Don? No, you can unmute yourself. You can, you can do it. Okay. All right. On that day when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd behind, they took him with them in the boat just as he was. Other boats were with him. 
a great windstorm arose, and the waves beat into the boat, so that the boat was already being swamped. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him up and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? He woke up and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. Then the wind ceased, and there was a dead calm. He said to them, Why are you afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great awe and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Thank you, David. Uh, perfect. Uh, and I should have said, also, we have uh, part of the doubling, Mark giving us two stories. We also have two stories. Um, we're looking at both of them this week of uh, journeys in the boat with Jesus. <laughs> and and here's the first one. And we're going to c- kind of compare and contrast with the other. Just I'd like to make a couple of remarks and then I'll uh, stop the share and see uh, what insights and, and uh, thoughts that you might have from this. Um, again, I've emphasized this quite a bit. The, let us go across the other side. Uh, this is um, Mark's indication that we're kind of in Gentile uh, territory. We've lo- left the kind of Jewish land. Um, I also want to point out things like this that I really love. Um, but he was, where it says, but he was in the stern, asleep on a cushion. I, I mentioned that Mark loves to write symbolically. And we're going to look how he structures both the boat stories to mirror each other they're very similar so mark writes in this very intentional symbolic way um he when he uses a phrase like bread um he's going to use it consistently throughout the entire gospel but but also mark gives us a lot of cultural color um a lot of interesting attention to detail that provokes a sense of a, a pretty realistic narrative jesus being asleep on the cushion um i think is just a great a great thing of detail. Um, asleep kind of at the stern um, very well may uh, remind us of or call to mind um, the story of Jonah, that Jonah falling asleep in the inner part of the ship when there's a storm raging. That's Jonah 1, uh, starting in chapter 1, verse 4. Um, okay, so, and then we kind of get to the more heart of this. Um, but he, he woke up, uh, they woke him up and they said, teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? So one of the themes in chapters uh, five, six, and seven here at the end of chapter four, after the sermon that we have is the tension that is going to build between Jesus and the disciples. So before chapter four, those who are have hard hearts and those who are blind and those whom Jesus attacks are the kind of outsiders um, and and during this mission to the Gentiles in Jesus's kingdom building um, uh, 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 mission work, the strain inside his circle is what starts to become uh, paramount. And we have that first indication here. Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? As in um, perishing just uh, or dying, a profound fear of, of abandonment that that there's a, a, a distance between Jesus and the disciples that they're articulating. Um, and, and Mark, again, writing symbolically, uh, Galilee is not in any uh, geological sense a sea, and yet the way that Mark talks about it evokes imagery of the Red Sea or 
the biblical use of uh, kind of waters as uh, indications of chaos and threat and danger. And here we have the, that on full display. Jesus wakes up and his response is, uh, peace, be still. Um, this is a similar rebuke that Jesus gives in chapter one after that exorcism or what, during that exorcism. Um, that when the demon uh, challenges Jesus, he tries to name him. And what does Jesus say at the very, very beginning? Uh, like, be silent, quiet down, um, um, don't try to overcome uh, what I'm, I'm in control of. Okay. Uh, oh, and then the very end of this uh, story, uh, the disciples, they watch this just incredible display of um, Jesus's power. And they say, uh, who then is this, uh, that even the wind and sea obey him? And that this, uh, who is this? These are the exact questions that the crowds are, are, are asking in, in total astonishment and unfamiliarity with Jesus. So the disciples feel very much um, on the outside. They just, they're, they're not understanding uh, what Jesus is up to. Um, this is again emphasized with Jesus's kind of shock at their uh, their lack of faith. Uh, then the wind ceased and there was dead calm. He said to them, why are you afraid? Have you no faith? Um, again, have you no faith is, is cutting to the very heart of, of their mission. So it, on the one hand, uh, these stories, you, you kind of want to take the defense of the disciples that if you are in the boat and the boat is sinking and Jesus is asleep in uh, in the stern, you think, you know, why be so harsh on the disciples? Isn't this the most human reaction? And that's a very interesting thing to explore. And I, I wouldn't discredit that by any means. But Mark is, again, writing this very kind of symbolic narrative where at, at a moment's at a moment's trouble, even though the disciples believe that Jesus is the Messiah, you know, they, the, the boat hits the rocks and uh, they, they don't recognize Jesus. They, they, they feel like he's completely abandoned them. And, and Jesus speaks to this by, by saying, like, not just don't be afraid, but like, where's the faith, guys? Um, and Chad Myers wants to suggest that the where's the faith remark is like, um, uh, because of the difficulty of their journey, it, this is a foreshadowing of how hard um, a mission to non-Jewish people is going to be. Let me just pause right there. Uh, any thoughts on this this passage, questions or insights? Yeah, Elizabeth. Yeah, yeah. But when it it really struck me tonight how the still no faith right uh, 
there must have, there just, you know, there was so much more going on day to day than I, I you know, would really have thought about before. Yeah. Yes. You know, and so many of the miracles are off screen in the first three chapters. We, we hear allusions to them and a couple of them, we get a full story. Um, but you, you might think, you know, um, the disciples, yeah. Having traveled with this guy, he's like, um, he's had showdowns with the scribes from Jerusalem. You know, he's, he's made the lame walk. He's healed, um, people's sight. And there's like a storm and the disciples are like (laughs) completely lose it. Um, as, as though, as though Jesus had no control over their, their outcome. Right. Was happening. Oh, that's perfect, Jean Ann. In the next story that we're going to look at, which is the the second kind of boat story, really gets to this point. Um, but yeah, yeah, David. Um, I just wanted to point out that uh, this is one of the texts of the of the, um, the first three gospels. There's a there's a lot of critical scholarship out there that says that yeah. The first three Gospels do not point to the divinity of Jesus, mm. and only John does. Interesting. Because they're not kind of looking, uh-huh. and if you look at the parallels, I'll post them to the chat room, there's very clear parallels here between the powers that only God has um, to control the sea, yeah. even in places like Moses parting the Red Sea it was very clear that God did it, and Moses uh-huh. simply yeah. kind of it wasn't Moses parting the Red Sea; it was God doing it. Yeah. And uh, so the, the 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 first three uh, gospels, the synoptic gospels, are are very clearly and points pointing out the divinity of Jesus. It wasn't just made up in the last gospel, you know, the the one that was generally dated the latest. Right, right. So, David, let me just clarify that. Um, what you're saying is that in the first three Gospels, um, it, the divinity of Jesus is assumed. Um, uh, and we, we, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. It's just, it's more subtly done. Jesus uh-huh. didn't run around Galilee screaming out, I'm God, I'm God. Yeah, yeah. Look at me, I'm God. Yes. He wanted the people to figure it out for themselves. Just like, you know, with the moment with uh, Matthew, who do you think I am? Right. So he, he yeah. know, the first three synoptic gospels were written in such a way that you just kind of read it and you start wondering, yeah. if this is true, who is this person? And they want you to kind of reach that conclusion yourselves. But there, as you'll see in the next one on the water, there's an even more direct reference yes. to, uh, to, um, to the divinity of Jesus. That's per- you're, you're still in my thunder, David, but thank you. That's, that's perfect. That's, <laughs> that's perfect. Good. Oh, yeah, Patty. Yes. Or it strikes me as such. Yes. And so now here they are getting to know this man. 
and uh, I appreciated your opening comments about this turmoil going on with you know between the disciples and Jesus because there is awe and there's also fear. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Well. Yes. Thank you, Patty. And yes, I. I. One one of the most powerful passages when I'm reading it in church um, is the prodigal son story, and we get to the point where the prodigal son, or the the um, not prodigal son, the the son who stays, and he says, I can't remember exactly what it is, but like, you can imagine the disciples saying it, and that's like, like I've given up everything. <laughs> You know, like, why don't you love me? Why, why don't you show me the types of exuberant love that you have shown my brother who has done nothing but dishonor you, you know? And, and there's a similar thing in um, chapter nine, eight, I can't quite remember now. Oh, chapter 10 with a rich young ruler where Jesus says, you know, um, um, it's easier for the a camel to get through the eye of the needle than for the rich to get into the kingdom of God. And the disciples um, say like, Lord, we've given up everything. <laughs> like, like, are you saying like, we're not going to make, you know? And so, yes, I, um, I'm with you, Patty. I, I, I really do feel for, for the disciples who have, who have given up everything. Um, and yet Jesus won't let them off the hook. You know, I, uh, there's there's still more to learn. Okay, this is great. We're getting closer and closer. And this next story, there's a lot of this, a lot of similar themes, but it, it, it develops them in this really interesting way. So let's let's get. Um, will somebody like to read this uh, second story, which is um, for those of you who can't see Mark chapter six forty five through fifty three. And I, I can't see uh, your faces right now. Um, so if someone's waving. Uh... I can read it, John. Yes, Don, thank you. Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. After saying farewell to them, he went up on the mountain to pray. When the evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. When he saw that they were straining at the oars against an adverse wind, he came towards them early in the morning, walking on the sea. He intended to pass them by, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. Then he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Thank you. Thank you, Don. Uh... So just want to, before we get into the nitty gritty of that passage, just want to pull back real quick and compare the first trip to the second trip, just to real quick show 
how intentionally Mark constructed these stories to parallel one another. So I'm just going to read out a couple of them. He said in the first story, he said to them, let us go across. And the second one, he made his disciples go before him. Um, uh, so uh, further on towards the end, um, it, uh, in the first story, it says, and the wind ceased. And that's exactly paralleled in the second story. And then he says in the first one, why are you afraid? Have you no faith? And the second, he says, take heart. It is I have no fear. Um, and in both cases, the response was um, in awe. Um, they were astounded uh, when they were going to the other side. So, again, just a little bit of uh, credibility there for Mark uh, writing a text that is uh, has quite a bit of uh, literary integrity. Okay, so looking about this second story in detail. First up, I think there's this just inc really interesting story. Uh, 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 rhetoric about Jesus making the disciples. So you'll notice that the first story is in Mark chapter 4. And so basically, and here it, we have, um, in, the second story is Mark six forty-five, which I believe is at the end. I just want to double check that. Not not the exact end, but, but pretty close. So you've had a significant amount of Jesus's mission uh, to the Gentiles. Um, having taken place and it's as if the disciples Jesus tells them to get back in the boat and they're like no <laughs> last time we got into the boat to go to the other side it was awful so here it's no, Jesus is like making them get into the boat and notice that the text just in the first couple of um, sentences emphasizes three different times the separateness between Jesus and the disciples First, he made them get into the boat while um, uh, he dismissed the crowd. And then after saying farewell to them, he went to the mountain. Again, he's apart from them. And then the next sentence, when evening came, the boat was out to sea and he was alone on the land. So uh, Mark just emphasizing three times that there's this separation um, between Jesus and the disciples. Uh, okay. Now, there's a couple of I think without a little bit of digging, very curious phrases in this story. The first one is he intended to pass them by. And the second one is um, at the very end, they did not understand about the loaves. And I think um, hearing both those phrases, there's like a, a genuine like, I, what's going on here? Like, I, I, I literally don't know what Mark is trying to say. And, um, and David's done a really good job about kind of finding the, the uh, uh, correspondence between different texts that Mark is using. He passed him passed them by here. Mark is not trying to suggest that Jesus was trying to get around the disciples without them seeing him, which I think would be a common uh, an easy um, interpretation, but but not what Mark intended at all. Um, this he passed them by. This is a phrase that is used in various places in the Hebrew Bible. And it is, um, it, it's not a trying to avoid, for instance, in Exodus 33, um, chapter 33, verse 19, uh, uh, we, say, we hear, uh, the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing that you have said, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by your, my name, by, by name. Moses said, show me your glory, I pray. And the Lord said, 
I will make all my goodness pass before you, as in like be 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 present unto you. So it would easily easy be able be easy to have the opposite sense of what of what that is. Um, and this is something that Elizabeth pointed out that I think is really insightful that um, Jesus coming near the kind of the glory of God passing before them like many Hebrew Bible theophanies a theophany is the fancy Tencent word for when um, God's presence is made manifest and as often happens in the Hebrew Bible when there's a theophany um, it oftentimes produces a sense of terror <laughs> um, uh, 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 fear and trembling just literally kind of a bone shaking will I survive the greatness um, being in the presence of the greatness of God and um, as uh, David was alluding to it, it really well oh and I just want to make a connection here uh, a similar theophany Sometimes people read the end of Mark where it ends with um, the tomb being empty as an indication and maybe not of resurrection, but something else. But there it, it, it's a different type of theophany where um, terror and amazement is also produced, uh, provoked in, um, in the women uh, who, who go to the tomb. Just a couple more notes about this. Take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. Um, so if you were reading the Septuagint, um, the kind of uh, uh, old earliest Greek version, um, what we have here is Mark using this phrase. Um, that's the same phrase from Exodus uh, chapter three, which is the I am statements. Right. Uh, so um, when Moses says uh, to the burning bush, who do I say sent me when I go to Egypt and to talk to Pharaoh? And Jesus' response is merely, I am. Um, so uh, uh, there, uh, Jesus is not just a prophet in this story. It, it, we have the, the presence of God. And I, I want to point out, too, that from uh, in a standpoint of liturgy in the kind of the Episcopal Church and lots of other churches that use um, this are, are formalized prayers for worship so many of our services begin as jesus so often begins when he is meeting with people and that is um, reassurance peace peace be with you this is how we often start um, our prayers the lord be with you peace be with you um, and also with you uh, so here we have a uh, compare contrast be between the fear of the disciples and Jesus's reassurance of peace. Now, the other phrase that I think is just really difficult to understand is the, um, they're utterly astounded for they did not understand about the loaves. This is something that we're going to talk at length about next week. It is just really, really fundamental to the kind of kingdom that Jesus is trying to um, bring about. Um, just a, a quick uh, uh, preview of that. Jesus is talking about economic relief uh, for people, um, that this is a, a central aspect of bringing about the kingdom of God, and that is meeting the um, physical and material needs of people, including their hunger, which Jesus does through the loaves. And uh, through the loaves is the bread is something that is used throughout the entire Gospel of Mark, starting with Jesus' story about David, 
that um, when his companions were hungry, David stole, <laughs> broke the law by stealing the bread of the presence to give to them in their hunger. It's going to also, we're also going to see it in the feeding of the thousands um, that through loaves um, and uh, generosity of people that uh, there's enough resources for all people. And then finally, um, just before the crucifixion uh, at the, the, the um, institution of the Eucharist. But again, notice that after these, these um, missionary trips to the Gentiles, to Jesus building the kingdom, um, in the first story about the crossing of the boat, uh, we have Jesus say, why, 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 why isn't there faith? And here it's much worse. It's much worse. Um, it, it, it's almost a crescendo. Um, it says at the very end, and they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Um, the hearts being hardened is the exact thing that Jesus accuses the Pharisees of. Um, it, it's one of it's the thing that immediately um, precedes blindness, as in total spiritual blindness, not being able to see the will of God. Um, and the kind of like pullback message here is that, um, this mission, which I'm going to characterize as a mission of integration, um, bringing, uh, Jew and Gentile together, um, we're in the next two stories is going to like give the evidence, I think for this, but this, these missions of integration, um, and of, uh, uh, economic relief is the greatest challenge for the Christian community. The, the, the disciples being um, avatars for the first century um, Christians who are also having a hard time integrating with the Gentiles, but also us. <laughs> Hence the title of this, um, uh, this course on dismantling racism. Even today, 20 centuries later, <laughs> Um, this is still the most profound activity of the church, the most difficult of the church. I stopped to share too, too soon. Just give me one more second. Um, uh, look at this uh, that Chad Myers pulls our attention to. First voyage is in chapter four. There's a storm. Um, second, the return, the second time in the boat, the return, no storm. Second voyage, again, to the Gentiles, there's a storm. On the way back, there's no storm. So, again, there's like this interesting, um, particular narrative about what the, the Sea of Galilee, Galilee is like. And apparently it's just actually true that storms arise on the sea. And, and Mark's giving us some, like, color to what the actual land and sea is like. But also, it is a metaphor <laughs> for how difficult it is to cross from one ethnicity uh, to the other. Um, and, and the great cultural distance from one to the other and the storm that it creates within that Christian community. Pause here for uh, thoughts and reflections. Okay, I've got. Uh, well, I don't want to. I don't oh. want to. I just want to say I don't want to be the only one to reflect, but I did want to yeah. mention that I love this part because apparently the um, the original Greek uh, actually the original Greek actually says I am. 
You're right. Like, yes. Like the, yeah. like the Old Testament. And they yeah. just translated it in his eye because otherwise you'd be like, what? You know, they, <laughs> yeah. they, they just want to kind of yes. make it flow. Yeah. But you contrast it to what Jesus says after the resurrection. He says, it is I myself because he's, he's trying there. The purpose is to say, hey, guys, don't freak out. It's, it's really me. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yes. Yeah. That's great. Thank you, David. Actually, interesting. Yeah, Don. What comes to my mind is um, I've been, it's been going through my head since you started this class. There is a um, there is a rendition by the gospel singer Vanessa Bell Armstrong called "Peace Be Still," uh. and it's really going back to the first reading, but it, it applies to what you just said too. And I was looking at the lyrics that she uses in that in that song, and the lyrics um, in the second part of the song say, "Weather the wrath of the storm-tossed sea, or demon, or men, or whatever it be." So uh, that gets that whatever the wrath is that we're facing here. Yeah. In the end, God, God is in command of whatever that storm is. Yeah. And in the end. Everything obeys God's will. Mm. And the way she delivers that song, if you have a chance to listen to it. Yeah. Okay. I mean, that part where she says, don't you care that we're perishing? I I can hear myself sing it just like that. Uh, Don, could you put her name in the um, chat? Uh, sure. I, I'd love to, love to, to search that out. That sounds really great. Yeah, there's this. Um, I think one of the one of the hardest things for me to articulate is the the sense of um, good faith and bad faith around questions of trust about God. You know, and the the good faith version or the bad faith version, I think, is uh, is like, um, why are you worrying? God's in control. <laughs> you know, and and. The, well, that's the bad faith version says like we should all be uh, we should all be blase about the troubles of the world because and not engaged because you know God's in control. So like, why are you worrying about the climate or economic uh, inequality or other racial issues? Like, don't worry about stuff. Just God's in control, and and that that's like a kind of a pacifism, not pacifism but like just being uh totally disengaged which i don't think is at all what jesus is calling us to then there's this other thing that i think um that your uh artist is getting to don and certainly is at play here in the story which is like the sea is will be rough we will encounter storms um uh things there will be persecutions. There will be wars. Uh, I, I, Jesus is not promising us a smooth, easy trip. And yet, even with the very worst that can be thrown at us, God is. God remains with us. And, and being in the heart of God, being confident uh, in the heart of God, means ultimately not having to fear to fear these things 
so the, the way I've heard it put that I really like is that hope is not a prediction about the future. Um, it, it, it's a, uh, a, a relentless abiding trust that no matter how bad things are, we are still in the arms of God. Okay, great. Let's continue on uh, with the first of the two uh, healing stories. Joshua, can I just say something? Sorry, yes, please, please. I'm sorry. Yeah. So that is very, to me, sounds very different than what people often say, which is that um, God won't give you more than you can handle, which I find to be entirely right. offensive. Yes. Um, so I'm glad to hear you. Um, what you. I'm glad to hear what you just said. Thank you, Susan. I was having a hard time articulating the bad faith version, but that you've articulated it very well. And I almost want to say that it almost depends on the way that it's sung, right? You could say the same words, you'd say the same words and be be meaning like, I have total solidarity with you. <laughs> I'm going to travel with you. We're going to be together. I'm not saying that like, you know, um, and then you could say the exact same words by saying like, I'm totally checked out from your life. I don't care, you know, and it, it, everybody else. Are you guys, are you following this? I, I don't feel like I'm doing a great job here. Well, you know, Joshua, when I was a little girl and my mother was diagnosed with cancer, I remember going into the backyard with the dog and throwing this frisbee so hard at poor little dog. Um, mm. And screaming at God with my 12-year-old heart. And so it's okay to be, it's okay to scream. Yes. And I feel like that's what those disciples. Yes. And, and it's, it's like you said, it's still having that abiding trust. Yes. And, and being able to, to have that kind of dialogue does not represent that the abiding trust is not there. Yeah. Out of the songs or screams. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. Thank you for that, Don. There's this. Um, I love the messiness of the Bible. I love that uh, whoever edited parts of the Bible did not edit out the buffoonery of the disciples. <laughs> it really gives me a sense of like hope for myself <laughs> that I am amongst friends uh, in my own buffoonery, um, but also. Uh, there's the buffoonery of like the disciples just clearly not getting what Jesus is trying to teach, but also that they're the, the fear that Mark conveys that they're experiencing. This is an existential, we are dying. Why won't you help us, Jesus? Um, and, and then also, which I just think is very human. And, and I love the, the humanity coming through also um, the, the great kind of, paradox and tension of the way that Jesus is presented throughout the Gospels. Um, on the one hand, you have like, you know, I am, like, I'm unmovable, I'm unshakable, I will be here no matter what, um, have trust in me, have confidence in me. And then Jesus crying out on the cross, um, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Um, which is, uh, again, just this profound profoundly human moment that that um anyway thank you don that's, that's it's also powerful. a quotation of uh psalm 22 so yes right yeah 
which yeah. ends in the saving saving grace of God and the saving of the Gentiles. So yes, yes. The and I guess what I was trying to think of, David, and and, and thank you. Like there. There is no biblical passage out there with that doesn't presuppose hope. Do you know? Um, um, that's fundamental to the game that's going on. And yet, what I love about the Bible is its willingness to not skip through the suffering bits. Um, uh, I must disagree with you, my friend. Psalm 88 is entirely negative. Every single line of Psalm 80. And that's the beauty of it. There are moments in our lives when we just are just in, a, in an abyss. Yeah, yes, yes. So what, what I mean is like um, the, the fundament, fundamental perspective of the people who are constructing these stories is that um, we are in the arms of God. Um, Absolutely. I, I think we're, we're, we're really close on this one. What I'm trying to say is that in agreement with you that that the Bible does not present a merely triumphantal text where everyone's winning all the time and there's no struggle. It it really invites <laughs> it really invites us to yeah. seriously consider the suffering of others and how yeah. how God is related to that. Can we can we pause for just a minute longer here um, as a group? And this response that that we've heard, um, and uh, and let me just summarize what you just said, Bill. Uh, and that is, I'm not going to get vaccinated because if God wants me, God wants me, and you know, Kesara uh, uh, Sara, uh, I'm I'm wanting to get to heaven, and if it's my time, it's my time. This, I think, is a a perfectly parallel type of response that Jesus encounters with the Pharisees and the scribes. Um, uh, can, can someone try to make that connection? I, I want to, but I, I let's let's just pause as a group and see if what. So, what do you think the the Jesus of the Gospel of Mark? How might he respond to that sentiment? Anybody want to take a stab at that? Yeah. Jesus would also say you are your brother's keeper, so it's not just your worries about yourself, but right. how are your actions impacting other people? Yes. Right. Just, I mean, why do we have modern medicine and why do we have anything if, if it's just going to be, oh well, just trundle along when it's your time, that's it. Yeah, and God loves you. God made you because God loves you, and you're missing the point. Yeah. Your hearts are hard. Yeah, that's that. Those that's uh, that's exactly where I was going to go, and that is, um, Jesus w wants to take a step back at the uh, the the synagogue system and the temple system, the debt system, uh, the tithing system, and say, how is this affecting the poor? Is this excluding people from um, their access to wholeness to health? Uh, uh, um, 
to being fully incorporated into the community or is it excluding them? And, and so my sense is, is with, with David about the brother's keeper. And that is like, um, a, a purely personal version of Jesus and God is not something that, that the gospel, the Jesus of the gospel of Mark is interested in. It is how do we use our position in power to help the welfare of others, especially those who are sick and vulnerable. And in my mind, the anti-vax um, movement um, is threatening to their own individual health, which is one thing, but um, is threatening to the people who are most vulnerable in, in our communities for health. And, and that, to me, I think is where Jesus would absolutely rage. Um, that there is that that is the epitome of uh, of uh, uh, selfishness. Um, okay, so that, that I think that's a, a very that's very helpful for me to again to try to like translate what we're reading into um, kind of current current stuff. Not unrelated to these healing stories. So let's let's take a uh, another deep dive. If I could have someone read. This is, this is actually kind of a long story. Um, so, uh, this is Mark chapter five twenty one verses twenty one through forty three. It's uh, the story of Jairus, his daughter, and the hemorrhaging woman. Well, I'll read it. Thank you, Jean Ann. Only because I suffered from a hemorrhage for a long time and finally did something about it. Wow. I really relate to that woman. No kidding. When Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered around him, and he was by the sea. Then one of the leaders of the synagogue named Jairus came in. When he saw him, fell on his at his feet and begged him repeatedly, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, so that she may be made well and live. So he went with him, and a large crowd followed him in on him. <clears throat> now there was a woman who had been suffering from hemorrhages for 12 years. She had endured much under many physicians and had spent all that she had, but she was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak for sh and said, If I but touch his clothes, I will be made well. Immediately her hemorrhage stopped. She felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. Immediately aware that power had gone from him, Jesus turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my clothes? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing in on you. How can you say, Who touched me? He looked all around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling, fell down before him and told him the whole truth said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your healed of your disease. Thank you, Jean Ann. Does somebody want to finish uh second oh, I'm part? Sorry, I thought No, it's okay. I, I just clicked to the next slide. If you still have got enough juice, go for it, Jean Ann. Uh, no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John. 
they came to the house of the leader of the synagogue, he saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. When he had entered, he said to them, Why do you make a commotion and weep? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. Then he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Delika kum, which means, little girl, get up. And immediately the girl got up and began to walk about. She was 12 years of age. At this they were overcome with amazement. He strictly ordered them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. Fantastic. Thank you, Jean Ann. Um, so uh, just point out a few things as we go through this. Uh, so Jesus had crossed again to the boat to the other side. So this is he's coming back uh, to um, back to the Jewish side. So Jairus is a leader in the synagogue. So this is a very Jewish uh, story um, uh, to the point of death. I want to come back to this at the at the end of talking about this uh because there's an interesting translation thing there. Um, so, uh, on the Jewish side, Mark emphasizes kind of the problematic nature of honor culture. So, um, or at least he's trying to problematize um, honor culture. So, Jairus is a named person, one of the few characters in the uh, Gospel of Mark that Jesus happens upon who is, who is given a name. Uh, not only is he given a name, we know that he is uh, the leader of a, is the leader of the synagogue, so he's a person of power. Um, uh, kind of stepping back from this, there's a, a, a lot that we that it's hard for us to uh, appreciate, that specifically this kind of honor culture uh, that is still present in in various parts of the world, but certainly was um, definitive in the first century in Palestine. And in an honor culture, um, usually this is divided by sex. Um, so men are usually striving for honor, um, but women are usually trying to relieve or avoid shame. So most of the time, women are only capable of falling into shame, um, whereas not being able to acquire honor, uh, whereas men are, are oftentimes um, given honor uh, receptively or passively, they receive it through birthrights. Um, uh, all that to say, in part, as the second part of the story shows, um, that women be assertive is kind of a fundamental violation of this, this honor system and their place in society. Uh, so we see uh, Jairus approach Jesus as a wealthy, privileged person might. Um, he, he comes to him. Um, and he requests something of Jesus, uh, kind of an, an envoy in that sense. Um, this is all in contrast to uh, the woman who is hemorrhaging. Um, uh, whereas Jairus is assertive, uh, uh, um, requests something of Jesus, uh, the, the hemorrhaging woman is anonymous. Um, she reaches out from the cover of the crowd. She's um, completely without status. Uh, it doesn't presume that Jesus is someone uh, that will be interested in helping her. Um, in the story, we're told, uh, uh, in the gospel, we're told that she had suffered, she had endured much under many physicians and had spent all that she had. She was no better. It's a very cynical remark um, that the other synoptic uh, 
gospels uh, don't keep, um, and but rather she grew worse. So um, Mark is emphasizing that this is a doubly poor woman. Um, she's a victim of segregation, being physically disabled. She would have been hemorrhaging all the time. This is a uh, a very strong mark against uh, someone, someone who would have to be uh, cast out uh, from um, uh, from uh, those who are healthy. And also she's been exploited, that the physicians um, took all that she had and yet made her worse. The contrast is with Jesus. Um, through faith, not money, Jesus, the true physician, will cure her. And again, it mirrors um, Jesus's inaugural ministry in chapter one, um, which is that uh, uh, Jesus both violates and reverses the contagion, um, uh, the impurity through his touching. Instead of Jesus becoming impure himself and cursed and cast out, which would have been the cultural expectation, and uh, he reverses that expectation and he touches her and uh, she is healed. Um, the woman's gesture is technically offensive, right? Uh, to touch, to assert. Um, uh, she also interrupts the important mission that Jesus is on with Jairus. And yet it's this woman that Jesus sees true faith in. Whereas at the very end, daughter, your faith has made you well. Um, that is not a kind of recognition that Jesus gives uh, to, to Jairus. Um, notice again that Jesus calls her a daughter in this this in my mind uh, recollects chapter uh, the very end of chapter three. Whoever does the will of God is my sister and my brother and my mother. Uh, so here, uh, this very unlikely woman um, has been given the, um, the highest form of recognition by Jesus, and that and that is that she is a person of faith. Okay, last part. Uh, so again, we see the contrast. Uh, he resumes his mission with Jairus, uh, who is uh, filled with anxiety after hearing that his daughter is not just sick, but dead. And Jesus says to him, do not fear, only believe. That is, um, take this ex exemplar, this woman who has faith as your example uh, um, uh, of overturning uh, fear with faith. Uh uh, this is a small point, but they went, the crowd went from weeping to laughing. And this is like something you could kind of hire crowds, rich people could hire crowds to do the weeping. But it also, it, it, again, it points to this kind of wealth and privilege as, as leading to a type of non-integrity. Um, these were not sincere, sincere people. Um, okay. And then, then we get into like the higher symbolism, which is, we find out that just as the hemorrhaging woman had been sick for 12 years, Jairus's daughter um, was 12 years old. So here, we, again, we have this very particular story that Mark also means uh, to symbolically point uh, to a much bigger narrative. So Anytime the use of 12 happens in the New Testament or the Hebrew Bible, um, this should immediately uh, make us think of the 12 tribes of Israel. So here's the suggestion. Um, 
uh, the contrast is, on the one hand, we have uh, 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 the house of Israel, this leader, this the, the leader of the synagogue who has his 12-year-old daughter. Um, and so even though the, the people of God are privileged people that we've seen, that God is all the time reaching out specifically to them so that they might be the vehicle of, of um, sharing God with with the rest of creation, uh, but Israel is a, is is privileged among nations. But um, recently, their privilege has been used uh, not for the absorption of those who are lowly and outcast into the whole community, the holistic community of God, so that they might seek out the widow and the orphan, um, as uh, we read in the in the Pentateuch, um, but rather. That, that their privilege has led to a stratis, stratified, stratified society. Um, it, and thus the kind of metaphorical sickness that we see in this girl who appears at one point uh, to be dead. And so if we go back up to the, to the beginning, the near death, that kind of more literal translation is um, at the point of death or near death. The literal translation is near her last. And so we have this kind of imagery that Jesus uses later, that the last will be first and the first will be last. So the suggestion is that even with all the privilege, um, uh, uh, these, the privileged people of God, if they are not proactively seeking out and bringing in um, those who, are, who have been cast out like the hemorrhaging woman, um, that there will be illness. Last thought here is that you might think that it would that Jesus thinks that Mark thinks that we should think um, that people who have done this are are uh, uh, condemned or are too far gone, and so that's what we see in the narrative, right? Someone says your daughter is dead, but Jesus ignores this. She's at the door of death, and then notice at the very end, little girl get up, and immediately the girl got up and began to walk about. And uh, he strictly ordered that no one should know this. And he told her, told her to give something to eat. That is a mirroring of Jesus' own resurrection, right? Where he specifically asks for food. And so what we have here is Jesus resurrecting the children of Israel. We have, we have um, Jairus who is struggling with his faith. And that Jairus is contrasted with the lowest of the low, the hemorrhaging woman, a person of faith. So again, Jesus is constructing his new community, not from the powerful, um, uh, not from um, uh, even men, but from uh, this woman who had been cast out as a person of genuine faith. Thoughts, questions, reflections? How Did that land okay? Okay. <laughs> Let's see here. What else did I miss? All right, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll leap in there. Uh, two points to reinforce what you said. Uh, big passages on purity and class and privilege. Purity, um, just to note, you know, this, we've talked a lot about purity in one of the earlier ones. Um blood and particularly women who were menstruating was considered very unclean right. in those times and yes. I, I just posted a Leviticus 
there's a whole section on this that just obviously shows the sort of the the, the, the way that women such a one would have been perceived she would have been like the, the lowliest of the low and jesus but the other thing that's sometimes overlooked is when when jairus uh sees him he's a leader he's a leader of a church and this is at a time when the the disciples really think that they have a chance of creating a uh kingdom here on earth and jesus is gonna lead you know an over overthrow of the roman king and they were going to be like you know prime minister and ministers and in, in an earthly kingdom and here they are rushing off to save a a little girl of a vip and what happens some lowly of the low stops him and they're like dude what are you talking yeah of course somebody touched you Ooh, ooh, let's go and help this other important dude yeah or his daughter died so it's a uh, it's another example. It's kind of like you know your ambulance is running and you're you're rushing to the hospital, and then you you pull over because you see something on the side of the road that kind of tweaks your interest. So it, it's just a it, that image there that comes from a, a, a sermon. I didn't make that image up. That that ambulance thing I once heard that really stuck with me. But uh, um, it yeah. really emphasizes how Jesus doesn't give a whit about purity stuff and he cares about purity of the heart he does not care about privilege and class he cares about the heart yeah very well said very well said david uh this story about the hemorrhaging woman kind of being honored with the title of a person of faith makes me think of another passage um that i had forgotten of uh which is from Matthew 21, um, chapter 21, verse 31, and Jesus is <laughs> rebuking, um, rebuking the Pharisees, and he says, The tax collectors and prostitutes are making their way into the kingdom of God before you. <laughs> I mean, um, it, uh, to Jesus, it has nothing to do with status, right? Um, and, and how the Pharisees and the scribes and the religious caste um, have uh, ranked people. Jesus is trying to totally, <clears throat> totally up in that and in this incredibly uh, provocative way. <clears throat> awesome. Okay, last two stories. Um, So uh, second healing uh, healing story and both. So there's two healing stories. And in each story, there's two healing stories. First one was Jairus. Well, Jairus' daughter and the hemorrhaging woman. Uh, and the second uh, is uh, the Seraphonician woman in chapter 7. And then immediately after the Seraphonician woman is um, uh, the healing of the blind man with a speech impediment. Does somebody want to read uh, uh, the uh, Seraphonician story? I'll read the Seraphonician. Thank you, Cindy. From there he set out and went away to the region of Tyre. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know he was there. Yet he could not escape notice. 
that a woman whose little daughter had an IQ of zero immediately heard about him. And she came and bowed down to his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile of Syrophoenician origin. She begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. He said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Sir, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Then he said to her, For saying that, you may go. The demon has left your daughter. So he went home, found, she went home, found the child lying on the bed, and the demon gone. Awesome. Thank you, Cindy. Uh so just a, a couple quick thoughts. We're kind of coming to the end of our time here, but um, a couple quick thoughts. First, notice that um, Jesus was, he had entered a house and this is a Gentile woman. So again, in the kind of honor, shame um, uh, society of the first century Palestine, uh, to go into a Gentile home um, unannounced, uh, to be a woman um, and to assert yourself in that setting uh, would have been, incredibly provocative so provocative and again i love that the that mark allows jesus this very human moment um even jesus uh um is dehumanizing uh towards her uh, essentially calls her a dog um and yet and yet she refuses to give up <laughs> she comes back with this incredible rhetorical and so once again, we have Mark allowing a woman, a Gentile woman in a, in a Jewish home to best Jesus in rhetorical argumentation. I, it doesn't happen elsewhere. Um, uh, and notice that Jesus says, for saying that. So unlike the hemorrhaging woman who has faith, it's her faith that heals her. It's this like uncompromising unwillingness to give up that Jesus recognizes as the source of healing um, for her daughter. Her unwillingness to take the patriarchy um, as the final word. Okay, and I just want to point out a few things about uh, the story, the second one um, from Mark 7, 24 through 37. Uh so he's in the region of Tyre, which is just the furthest region um, uh, in in the Gospel of Mark, I think. Um, and they bring to him a deaf man who also has an impediment of speech. Jesus lays his hand on him, took him aside in private, away from the crowd. Again, the kind of taking him away is to emphasize that Jesus is not some local magician or miracle worker who is looking to get paid and to get um, uh, a reputation as a, a as a popular man of, of healing. This is a, about attending to the person in front of him and not necessarily gaining uh, notoriety. Um, so he looks up to heaven. Uh, he sighed and said to him, Ephaphatha, that is, be open. Um, and immediately his ears were opened and his tongue was released and he spoke plainly. Then Jesus ordered him to tell no one. But the more he ordered them, the more zealously he proclaimed it. They were astounded beyond measure, saying he does everything well. He even makes the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. Just a couple of real brief things here um, and then we'll uh, take a break. So um, uh, Jesus uh, put his fingers into his ears and spat and touched. 
um, his tongue. That may seem, I don't know, just um, bizarre. But what's happening here is, again, just like t touching a leper, um, spit or saliva is going to be more or less equivalent to human excrement, right? It, it is, it's, it's dirty, it's low, it's shameful to do. So Jesus is embracing this whole man. And by embracing this whole man, once again, he reverses the contagion and he heals. Um, and then the, the last thing to, to note is that uh, in chapter 3, when Jesus is calling the disciples, he says to be with them and to be sent out to proclaim. And here this man, this, this blind man with a speaking speech impediment, uh, proclaims. So um, it is another parallel case of discipleship where he's going out and proclaiming the good news. We started this whole series talking about kind of like difficulties of, um, of understanding the Bible through interpretation, you know. Um, and one thing that I've heard in kind of like popular culture is I have not seen this movie, but I really want to. And it's the... Um, it's the new movie about Mary Magdalene starring Joaquin Phoenix. Um, I can't remember what it's titled, but uh, anyway, it looks really good. And in one of the interviews about the story, Joaquin Phoenix was supposed to it plays the character of Jesus. Um, and uh, he was supposed to do this miracle, which is to spit in the ground and then rub the spit on the eyes. And he said he wouldn't do it because that's disgusting. And I thought, that's the point, brother. <laughs> like, again, there's this weird cultural um, uh, uh, separation where to Joaquin, it seemed disrespectful. And it's the exact reverse. Jesus was willing to take on the shame that the entire community had placed on this man for being disfigured and deformed. And he was willing to touch him in this incredibly empathetic gesture. And through that empathy, there is healing. So uh, once again, it can, from a distance, it can feel like Jesus is doing like something that's um, uh, disrespectful when, when literally it, it's the, it's the reverse. I gave, I gave you warning. I gave you warning. So I love your explanation about the spit and the, you know, the, the fact that it's a symbolism. But as you know, I have a completely different interpretation of the Syrophoenician woman. Um, okay. I think there are plenty of examples in the Bible where Jesus foresees things. Uh -huh. uh, some of the things are, you know, just just a few of the examples. Um, Jesus uh, knows that um, Philip was under the fig tree. He knows where the donkey is when he's entering Jerusalem. He knows the hearts of the Pharisees and the healing of the paralytic. We've actually studied that. And of course, the most famous one of all, he knows that Judas is going to betray him, right? Uh -huh, uh -huh. So if you believe that, I don't think it's a stretch of the imagination to know he was provoking that woman intentionally in front of his disciples yeah. to completely let her come back and put him in his place and then instead of like being offended saying you're right i'm wrong and laying the 
example like washing someone's feet, utterly humiliating himself. Just, and I, I just, because otherwise he's being a racist and he's kind of yeah. being stupid and saying, oh, you know, you don't need to carry on the word to the, to the non-Jews, whereas there's so many other parts of the gospel where he's like, no, we got to go beyond the Jews and, and, and engage the Gentiles. So it's a much more consistent and Jesus-themed explanation of the Syrophoenician woman for Okay. Um, isn't, it, yeah. isn't that both ends? I mean, I, I yeah. don't see this as inconsistent. Yeah, that's kind of what I was thinking, Elizabeth. What, where, where do you think the tension is, um, David? Well, I think you're saying that he didn't know he was being rude. Oh. You said it was a very human moment. You yeah. You said that he was being, um, he was being just a complete jerk to this woman when he says he calls her a dog. Right. And I don't think he was. I think he was provoking her. I think he was, you know, showing that she had guts to stand up. And he was intentionally provocative to let her then come back and take it. Yeah. And show his disciples how wrong he was to call her a dog. Okay, good. Thank you for that, David. Uh, Any other uh, thoughts uh, along with David or um, in different directions? Yeah. Right. Right. When I have that happen around me, I'm like, okay, don't, don't do that because I see what's going on. Okay, so Don, if I'm understanding you, more generous interpretation of what Jesus did. Otherwise, he's calling her a dog, which is even more right. But I think what Don's saying, and I hadn't thought about it this way, is that even, even if we think that Jesus is like putting on a false face to her, it's still a pretty patronizing thing to do, right? Um, but I mean, I guess, I guess my sense of this is that, uh, that, um, the Christian tradition has always held, and there are, this is one of the of the examples that gets pointed, but not the only one that really takes seriously what Paul characterizes as Jesus emptying himself and, and fully embodying humanity and all of its frailness and all of its weakness. And I guess I, I just don't see the possibility of Jesus kind of making a mistake, um, and here, I think it's kind of a terrible mistake. It's a dehumanizing mistake, potentially, if we're to read it on its kind of surface value. Um, I think that that kind of fulfills what we hold to be this great tension and paradox that Jesus isn't faking being human, but is actually human. Um, and thus liable to have to say, man, wow, I was wrong. Um I'm going to embody this like first will be last and last will be first and say, uh, uh, this woman has got me. Hey, David, I want you to respond in a minute, but I want to open it up first too. Yeah, go ahead, Patty. Uh, well, two things for um, the interpretation that crisis for seeing something and then provoking the woman because he knows exactly what she'll do. This seems like um, 
it seems like it's working too hard from just for my aesthetic taste. Yeah. It seems like it's working too hard to make Christ infallible. And two is your original reading, which Joshua's reading, which I really like, where he's, he's seriously insulting her. I wonder if it is softer, uh, and she's replying in kind. Mm-hmm. I wonder yes. if it's softer if we understand that he is using figurative language. So he's not saying you're a dog right. stealing food from children. He's saying, well, let's, let's take this situation a little bit removed with this analogy. So he's not actually saying she's a dog, and then she's not actually saying, I am a dog, when she replies. She's right. saying, well, you know, I'll play along with your rhetoric, <laughs> but uh, in that case, then the dogs can break the rules, so why can't you break the rules for me? Right. Um, so that makes it kind of more playful and clever and less insulting and brutal. <laughs> and also, you know, she replies in kind, so she accepts that, so... I'd like to say that, you know, it's a clever game rather than I'm abjectly saying, yes, I am a dog in order to get your favor. I mean, right. she isn't saying that. Right. So I'm just putting that as another way. Yeah. To Thank you, Patty. That's great. Uh, Bill. And one more thing. I just oh, want yeah. to say that um, I, don't, I don't really feel like um, it's always appealing to bend over backward to say that Christ is infallible. Uh-huh. I, I do like the, the, the fallible price better yeah. than the, no matter what he does and seems to be doing wrong, he must be right. I find that uh, hard. Yeah. Uh, I, I find that kind of fun. Joshua, as to uh, yeah. one of the most profound parts of the Gospels, I think, is uh, Christ's palpable fear uh, facing his... Uh, Crucifixion. Yes. And the, the depth of that human emotion is, uh, I, I think, makes us all uh, rich as Christians. And uh, he, he can screw up also. And, and he can uh, uh, call someone a dog. And, and his, his profound humanness is what connects us to him. Yeah. Yeah, and David, I want to give you um, another word here. Uh, you know, I was just thinking as you all were talking about this, about last week that the hardest temptation in the the path towards following Jesus is the willingness to give up wealth. You know, in the um, parable of the sower, and here I think there's a similar thing happening, and that is, let's say that it was a mistake just for the the hypotheticalness of it. What is it that Jesus was not able to overcome? Like think about all of the people who came to Jesus, trying to attack him, trying to um, bring him down a notch, trying to get him tripped up. Um, uh, In this case, it was like the type of um, ethnic, uh, a reconciliation that was a deep part of his ministry that even Jesus struggled with. Um, even Jesus had a hard time taking that woman seriously. And so I think it, it works on this kind of, at least David, at, on a metaphorical level, if nothing else. And that is to say, like, um, um, even Jesus struggled here. So, of course, the disciples and the Christian community 
um, taking women seriously, taking people outside of our ethnic traditional boundaries seriously, um, all is really difficult. And, and yet Jesus was able to, but struggled. Yes, please. I think he was playing a student. Again, well, third, first of all, I, I have no problem with your interpretation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I, it wouldn't bother me at all. If, if, and I don't know what I'm saying. I'm only sharing my personal views. Yeah. Uh, the, one that, the one that feels more Jesus-y to me, given everything else we know about the Bible and the yeah. times that he kind of foresaw things. So I think he knew what he had to do. He was creating a teachable moment. He was playing a Stephen Colbert character, in, uh-huh. my, in my view. Yeah. He was intentionally being a jerk <laughs> in front of his disciples yeah. to let this woman put him down and put him in his place. Again, I may be wrong. Yeah. Uh, the final thing is that I actually think that it, you know, if you believe that Jesus was without sin, that's not saying he wasn't human. Yeah. It's a very different, you know, thing. Yeah. Gosh, when you're when you're going around calling Gentiles dogs, and you're also teaching your disciples, we've got to love everybody, including the Gentiles. I don't see the connection there. Yeah. Again, everybody reads the. That's the beauty of the Bible. We can read it differently. It means differently things. We get inspiration from different ways. If you get inspiration from thinking that Jesus was being a little racist there, a little intolerant. <laughs> all right, no worries. I'm loving it. Uh, I don't. The, I don't yeah. see it that. Yes, the gospel um, as being full of failure, something I've been talking about a little bit. Uh, But yeah, I mean, I think, so to your larger point, which is like part of the generosity of the Episcopal Church (laughs) is um, like, we don't have this um, list of boundaries of like, if you cross the boundary, you're out um, as far as like interpretation or doctrine. Yet we we feel like we're enhanced um, with multiple perspectives. So I, I fully affirm that. David and the truth and is, the, yeah, go ahead. I'm just going to say that the truth. The God, why have you forsaken me? Line. Yeah. Um, there are people who say that Jesus was like laying a a a, 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 a three pointer from the halfway court. He just slammed that down by quoting Psalm twenty two. Yeah. He was totally in control. He knew what he was doing. I'm like, no, that man was in pain. He was crying in agony to God right. and quoting scripture. Yeah. <laughs> he was yeah. doing both. He was feeling miserable to his heart and he was quoting scripture. So, you know, it's the duality of Christ that I love. Awesome. Okay. That's. I, I would say I kind of identify with what, what Patty had to say because I don't think women would have survived if we hadn't been really clever and smarter than most men thought we were. <laughs> I mean. Yeah. And that, that does remind me of the conversation we had last week about, or maybe it was the week before, Patty, I think you brought something up about this, about how I think how generous Jesus' response is and inclusive to the women um, that he interacts with, and yet how little of that is preserved um, in, in the, the first few generations of Christians, um, who mostly resumed a very patriarchal uh, uh um, religious structure, you know? So I feel like there's both a success story and a great sadness um, uh, for for women um, in the gospel text. I'll, I'll just end this little piece 
by saying all I can think about the whole time all of you have been talking is Majority Leader McConnell saying she persisted. <laughs> that, that, that's just what this all is to me. And it's your point, Joshua, 20 centuries later, right. we are no different. Yes. Thank you, Elizabeth. And and Jesus, it, yes. So let's say, let's re, re, revisit the text. Then he said to her, for you persisting, <laughs> the demon has let you like there, there's, there's healing because of your persistence. I, I love that. All right, y'all, we're, we're past time. Thank you for being so engaged. And um, next week, next week is the healing stories. This is like, in my view, Jesus' most clear instructions about how to construct the kingdom of God for economic relief. So, um, again, we've kind of been building towards this. So, I, if you can join me, we'd love to have you. Hi. Bye. Thank you, Joshua. Have a great night, y'all. Thank you. Thank you. And that concludes the question and answer portion of the podcast for this week. Hope you will join us again next week as we keep discerning ways that we might dismantle racism with Jesus as our guide. Peace.